Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. If God wanted the Bible to be an inch deep, he would have made it into a kiddie pool. But because God has made the Bible this Mariana Trench of beautiful data, he wants us to explore it. Now today we're going to explore at a, at a level that's a little deeper than normal. We're going to look at a theme that runs all throughout the Bible, and it's this theme of the temple, God's presence with his people. And we're going to view that from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to look and zone or zoom into John 14. We're going to see what God is doing with all of these things. Now, temple is something that is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. It begins much earlier than the Solomonic Temple, which was built in 957 B.C. It's much earlier even than the Mosaic Tabernacle, which is in the 1500s, after Israel is rescued from their slavery in Egypt, and they make this tent of meeting. It's way before that. In fact, the temple theme, the temple narrative, the temple reality, what's going on in the temple is on the very first page of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis. Now today, for a moment, we're going to look at 11 reasons why that's so, and then we'll get to the text that we have for this morning. Eden is the first temple where God and man commune together with one another. That's the first thing. It's a temple, I'm defining it this way, is a sacred space where God makes people sacred in order to offer him sacred worship. That happens in Eden. God carves out a sacred space called Eden. It is a garden land in the midst of a world filled with deserts. And God places his man and woman in the garden. He makes them significant and sacred by breathing life into them. That word in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. And then he commands them to worship him. That's a temple. Adam himself is the first high priest. You're like, I didn't read that in Genesis 1. Well, we have to read a little bit under the surface. What does a high priest do? Well, a high priest serves God. A high priest helps other people come into worship. The two words actually that are used for Adam in the Hebrew, Abad and Shamar, are the words that are used for Aaron, the high priest later. When it says that Adam is to cultivate the garden and to keep the garden, those are the same words for the priest who are to cultivate the temple and to keep it for the glory of God. The high priesthood, what this is teaching us, was not invented at the time of Aaron. It was actually patterned off of Adam. So it goes all the way back to the very beginning. Number three, if you're not convinced, we've got eight more. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden is the prototype for the temple lampstand that sits in the holy place in Jerusalem. Adam served in the presence of this great tree. It was a tree of nourishment in the ancient world. A tree, especially like this, was a symbol of life and vitality and nourishment. Well, inside the holy place in the Jerusalem temple was this lampstand called a menorah. 
it had a central trunk and it had seven branches. It's a tree. Seven branches where light is going to be present in the temple. And also the bread of the presence is right there in front of it. So nourishment. You've got a tree right there in the temple that's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. Jewish scholars are unanimous on this, that that menorah is a symbol of the tree of life. Because why? The priests are supposed to remember that as they serve in the temple, they're doing the work of reconciliation, bringing people back into the garden presence with God before sin corrupted things. Number four, the temple is decorated like a garden. Now we know what a garden is. It's, it's fruits and plants and flowers and nuts and trees and all of these things. Well, inside the temple in Jerusalem, there were wood carvings of apricots. There were wood carvings of, of different fruits and nuts and berries. And as you walk into the temple, it would have looked like a golden garden. So the temple's decorated like Eden to symbolize that it is patterned off of the original creation. It's not a novel creation. Number five, the temple is filled with gold and jewels. If you read the text in Genesis, there's four rivers, we'll talk about them in a moment, that flow out of the Garden of Eden. One of them is the Pishon, not Python, kids don't get scared. It's the Pishon, and that river flows into a valley of gold and gemstones. The temple itself is covered with gold and gemstones. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that it is patterned off of Eden in such a deliberate way. An interesting one, number six, is the Garden of Eden could only be entered through an east entrance. The, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was on the east of the garden, and it's the exact same way for the temple. The temple had one entrance, and it was, a temple, it was an entrance that faced east. So that if you were going to go into the temple, you had to turn and walk west into that eastern gate. Now, in the Old Testament, there is some symbolic references to east and west that I think are important. Every time the people of God in the Bible walk east, they're walking into curse or subjugation or slavery. You think of Adam, who was kicked out of the garden. He was kicked out of the garden. He was cast out through the eastern gate to walk east in his sin. Cain was exiled to the east after he murdered Abel. The people of Babel traveled east before they built the Tower of Babel. Judah was exiled to the east whenever God put them through the exile. There's a little theme there that as you're walking away from God, you're walking east. Which is also true that when you turn around and walk back the other way and you're walking west, there's a theme of redemption in the Bible. That's number seven. In order to enter the Garden of Eden, you would have to walk west, westerly. Is that a word? It's the same for the temple. It's the same for the tabernacle. If you were a high priest who were serving sort of in that Adamic role, you would have to turn and walk west to enter into the temple. And when you entered into the temple, you would see the fruit and the gold and the tree, and you would see this garden set up, and it would be symbolically like you were walking back to the Garden of Eden, representing your people who have sinned and been cast out of the presence of God. Abraham, when he goes to Canaan, he travels west to the land, the garden land, which is also a pattern of Eden. When the exiles returned home, they returned west. 
Again, this is symbolic for we're leaving exile, leaving sin, leaving shame, and traveling back into the presence of God. God is so providential over the details of the temple construction that he had it represent Eden in every way. Because, think about it, when we take communion, we take bread and wine. Those are tactile reminders of the gospel. God did that for the Old Testament people as well. He gave them tactile reminders of Eden, the hope that, for which he created the world. This one I think is even more important that as Adam and Eve were walking away from God to the east, God gave them a prohibition from entering back into the garden. And to enforce that prohibition, he installed two massive cherubim with flaming swords so that they could not enter back into the garden. Now, if you were a priest, this is what you would experience a couple thousand years later in Jerusalem. You would enter the garden temple, traveling west, just like Eden. You would have entered a golden room filled with plants and vegetation, just like a garden. And you would have entered into the Holy of Holies once per year. And on that big curtain, because there was a curtain that separated you from the Holy of Holies, on that curtain was woven two cherubim with flaming swords. Because you're walking back symbolically into the garden. When you get inside the Holy of Holies, there's two massive cherubim with their arms spread out wide, symbolizing that under the threat of death you were in here. On top of the mercy seat, there were two cherubim. I don't know exactly what they look like, but Indiana Jones has like this, you know, this little representation. Two cherubim on top of the mercy seat. There's three sets of two cherubim to remind you that you are not only walking by God's grace past the angels of death, but you remain in the Holy of Holies by God's grace. And all of this is typifying what Jesus is going to one day do in bringing us back into the garden with God. Those aren't coincidences. Number nine, under the threat of death, were you in the Holy of Holies? In the same way that you could not touch the Ark of the Covenant, in heaven you can ask Uzzah how that worked out. Under the threat of death, you could not touch the mercy seat. Well, in the same way, you were supposed to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil under the threat of death. Now, this number 10 makes even more sense because what is the knowledge of good and evil? The knowledge of good and evil is wisdom. So here you have this tree that is dangerous for humans. You're not supposed to grab from it, but it's also a tree that will give knowledge and wisdom. It's a place that if you eat from it, you will surely die. In the temple, the place where if you touch it, you will surely die is the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant is the law of God, the thing that gives us wisdom. So you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil compared to the Ten Commandments that are inside of the mercy seat. Another non-coincidence. The last one, I would say, is that Eden was on a mountain. And maybe you've never heard that before, that Eden was on a mountain. But I ask you to consider it this way. If there's four rivers that are flowing out of Eden... Rivers don't flow uphill. Rivers flow downhill. So you have four rivers that are flowing from Eden. I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe from all four cardinal directions. 
so that Eden was the geographical high point in that region. Now that's fascinating because in the Bible, high places are always places where worship occurs. High places are where temples were placed. Pagan temples, idolatrous temples, but also the temple of the living God. Jerusalem was the high point in the entire region. No matter what direction that you walked to Jerusalem, you had to go up to get to Jerusalem. And on top, the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, was where the temple was placed. It's a lot like Eden, is it not? Ezekiel even says that from that temple, streams of living water will flow, kind of like the Garden of Eden. All of this is symbolic of the fact that humans have fallen out of relationship with God, this glorious garden paradise where God made us to dwell with him, to love him, this sacred space where God makes us sacred and we give him sacred worship. All of that is lost, but not entirely. All throughout the Bible, God is giving glimpses, images, pictures, types, shadows of the journey back home. If we were cast out of the garden, God could have left us isolated from him forever, but he doesn't. He gives us pictures of what it's gonna be like to travel back. Pictures like a tabernacle, pictures like a temple, pictures like a high priest. I didn't list this one, this is bonus material, this is number 12. The high priest's clothing reminds us of the Garden of Eden. The first layer of it says that it clothes his nakedness. Wasn't it Adam who had to have his nakedness covered? The high priest is serving in a way that's supposed to remind us of what the true high priest Christ is going to come and do, which is bring us back into fellowship with God. And this reality of temple, God creating a sacred space for people who've been made sacred in his presence to do sacred duties and worshiping him is all throughout the Bible. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It's in Eden and it's also in New Jerusalem. If we believe as Christians that, oh, thank God that we don't have to deal with a temple, you've missed it because the temple is all throughout the Bible. As Christians, temple is a really important concept for you and I, which we will see in just a moment. If you will, well, actually, I've got a few more verses before we get there. Let's look at now, not only that temple runs throughout the scriptures, but God meets with his people intentionally at a temple. This is the design from God all along. Exodus 25, 8. It says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. God's desire is to dwell among sinful people by grace. Exodus 29, 42 through 43. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you and speak with you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated for my glory. Think about the grace that God shows over and over and over. These are golden calf making people. We can't judge them. We have a golden calf on Wall Street. Google it, it's right there. And yet God in his grace and in his mercy is welcoming them in over and over and over again, pursuing them with his presence. The great blessing of the Bible is God sharing his presence with undeserving people. That's what we see over and over again. Leviticus 26, 
11 through 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. One of the most unbelievable statements in the Bible. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul will not reject you and I will walk among you. The temple reality points back to Eden, does it not? Where do we see God walking and talking with his people in Eden? Here God is promising in Leviticus, I will walk and I will talk with you at the temple. Again, the temple is not a new reality when we get to it in Leviticus or when we get to it in the book of Kings. It is an old reality that goes all the way back to the very beginning. God even calls his temple his home which I think is, makes it even more personal. The temple is not just a religious building. As Christians, the church even, this is applicable to us, is not just a religious building. The temple is God's house, it's his home. Look at what God says about the very first temple in, in 1 Kings eight twenty seven. But God, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you how much less this house which i have built solomon doesn't say this building that i have built this great mega church that i have built this this great edifice that i have built he says your house all throughout the scriptures this idea that god is dwelling with us is that he's left he's let his guard down he's taken his coat off he's put his hat on the hat rack he's kicked off his shoes even and he's dwelling with us an intimacy this is really important because when we go to the church and when they went to the temple they weren't going to meet with a stiff aloof angry god who demanded that they come and worship i will make my presence known to you kind of like the wizard of oz the little short man in the booth it's not like that when you hear these phrases, you should hear the grace and the tenderness of God. I'll make my dwelling among you. I'll build my house in your neighborhood. That's what God is saying. Psalm 23, 6, David got this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's how David would have been. We laugh, but David would have burst through that door too. To David, it was not just a religious building, it was God's home. Isaiah 56, seven. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. My personal gathering place, the place where I let down all my guard and, and I make myself known, it'll be known as a house of prayer. This in fact is the point of John 14, two through three, but I don't want us to skip ahead too fast. One of my favorite verses on this section is Ezekiel 43, seven. I love this verse. Listen to what it says. And he said to me, God said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. God kicks his shoes off. He doesn't say, this is the place where you see the underside of my sandals. The temple is the place where I take my shoes off and I stay a while and I rest a while and I fellowship with my people. I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. 
And that's true because of what Christ has done now for us. There's a difference even between a house and a home, too, that we need to wrestle with. We have this phrase, home is where the heart is. We have that phrase because we're made in the image of God. The house that you live in right now may not be the house that you live in for the rest of your life. Your address may not always be the same. The building is not as important as the presence that inhabits it, right? My house burns down today. My house burned down, but not my home. My home is with the relationships that I've built, with the family members that I've built, and it can go anywhere. I talked about the army last week. We slept in a lot of places that don't look really housey. But I never felt like I was homeless. God's home, his abode, his dwelling is with his people by grace and grace alone. The prophet Haggai talks about this. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And then I may be glorified, says the Lord. Again, from the very beginning of creation until the end in New Jerusalem, God is making his dwelling known to people. He is making a sacred place for people to perform sacred duties to love and serve their God. But the temple also is not a stagnant reality because in the Old Testament, the temple was limited. The Old Testament doesn't present a completed temple. It presents a temple that was woefully limited. It was a picture. It was a shadow. It was a type of what Christ was doing, but it was not the fulfillment. On the very best day of the temple, one day out of the year, one man alone, through great preparation and through terror, got to enter into the oppressively good presence of God. His presence is so good that it overwhelms most people. A lot of them died and they had to pull them out by a rope. That's a limited temple that only one person gets to experience and only once per year. Most everybody else was on the outside looking in, which tells us that God's home also in the Old Testament had boundaries. It had borders in a similar way like ours does today. For instance, I'll talk to anybody on my front porch. I will. Jehovah's Witnesses, vacuum salesmen, Democrats who want me to put a sign in, their, in my yard. I'll talk to them on my front porch, but I'm not going to invite them in my backyard. Let's be fair. That's even wishful thinking. I don't have a yard. But if I did... See, we'll talk to people on the front porch. We won't invite them in their backyard. Backyard's a little bit more intimate, is it not? That's for your neighbors. That's for your coworkers. That's for friends who are friends of friends, maybe even. As you get further into your home, you get deeper in the intimacy. There's people who you would invite to your backyard who you would never invite into your house. Like, I like my neighbor. Maybe I would invite my neighbor, but I'd have him in my backyard before I'd have him in my living room. As you enter the home, it's a little bit more intimate. It's a little bit more exclusive. I would say, maybe you have different sets of boundaries than I do. I don't like when my house is a mess in the upstairs and someone 
goes upstairs to see our mess, our unmade beds. Do you feel that way? It's because upstairs is a little bit more intimate than the downstairs. You invite people over to your dinner table and you have fellowship and fun and, and that's great, but there's only a select people that get to go upstairs to the bedrooms. There's only a few people that get to, to see how it really is, you know? The deeper you go into a home, the more intimacy there is, the more exclusivity there is, and it's the same in God's temple. The people who were allowed on the front porch at a distance was the people of Israel. Most of them were on the front porch or in the backyard. They could, they could see God at a distance, but they didn't get to go into the house. They didn't get to go into his home. It was only a select group of people who were allowed to go into God's home, and that's the Levites and the priest. And most of them only got to go into his living room. There's only one, and only once per year, that got to sleep and enjoy the blessings of the upstairs bedroom, the holy of holies, where God takes his shoes off and he makes his presence known in its most beautiful and raw way. That's why the Old Testament temple was limited. Because not everybody got in. And as we transition now to John 14, as we've seen that temple is there from the very beginning, God's desire is to dwell with his people from the beginning, and yet sin and failure and brokenness and all of these things keep us at a distance from God. They keep us in the backyard with God, or they keep us not even on the front porch, but kicked off the front porch and into the street with God. We now need to look at what Jesus is going to do to rectify the situation. He's not going to throw away the concept of temple. He's going to do something beautiful to bring us in. So as we turn to John 14 today, verses 2 through 3, I want us to look at how Jesus is going to make a brand new temple. He's not going to reinvigorate the old one. He's going to make a new one, a final one, a perfect one, a better one. And in so doing, he's going to bring us from the outside in. So if you will turn with me, John 14, 1 through 3. We're going to read our passage this morning. And then we're going to explore these things together. John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, for where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your life, your work, all of it stands at the very center of human history. Everything created without sin, without error in the garden, tarnished and broken by our sin in Genesis 3, leaving humans without hope, without ability, broken, beyond their, their power to be able to fix. And yet, Lord, at just the right time, you came. You came to provide the remedy. You came to provide 
your gospel to fix the parts of us that are broken and to bring us in. Lord, today, would you help us to be able to see the temple reality underneath the gospel? It's a, it's a, it's a concept that we don't normally look at, that the gospel opens us up to the new and greater and better temple motif. It's not a reality that we look at often. It's not something that we consider very frequently, but Lord, would you help us to see it? Would you help us to appreciate it? Would you help us to be thankful in it? And Lord, would you help us to praise you because of it? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, the first thing we have to discover is is Jesus even talking about a temple? Because as I read verses one through three, I don't see the word temple anywhere. I don't see the word tabernacle anywhere. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is he talking about the temple? Now, I think he's talking about the temple. Yes, I think he's talking about more than the temple. That's why this sermon had to be two sermons. I said that last week. Isn't that funny how things multiply? One text becomes three sermons. Before you know it, it'll be the end of the year and we'll still be in John 14, verse 5. The Bible's deep and good. It's got a lot of amazing things inside of it. Today, I just wanted to look and see if temple is here and explore the ramifications. And I would say, yes, the word temple is not here, but yes, the concept is. Jesus uses the word house. He said, in my father's house. That phrase is not accidental. The phrase father's house only occurs a couple times in the New Testament. Jesus says three of them, and they're always talking about the temple. Every single time. Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is a teenage boy and he's talking to the people who ought to have known what the temple actually is, he says this, why is it that you were looking for me? He's talking to his mom and dad. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Where's he at? He's at the temple. He's saying that the temple is his father's house. John chapter two, he uses this phrase again. Now he's not a teenager anymore. Now he's 30 years old, he's entering ministry. John chapter two is the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the Pharisees again are questioning his authority, questioning what Jesus knows and this is what Jesus says to them. In John chapter two, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. He's saying, you're treating my father's house like it's just a building, like it's just a place for commerce, like it's just a marketplace, but it's my father's home. Get your tables out of my dad's house. He's talking about the temple, the intimate dwelling of God. When we take that understanding, we combine it with Jesus says in John 14, my father's house has many rooms. I think it's undeniable that he's talking about the temple in John 14. At that time, the temple complex was a massive, sprawling metropolis of buildings. King Solomon's temple was actually quite small. It was just a temple. That's it. By the time of Herod, they call it the Herodian temple, there was building upon building upon building. It was a massive, sprawling complex. It looks like a lot of megachurches in Texas. This building is this, this building is that, this building is that. It's just, there's the temple kind of subsumed among the temple complex. When Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms, it could be that he's applying to the fact or 
or sort of implicating the fact that, hey, this little temple right here is not big enough. It doesn't have enough rooms for all the people that I'm going to let in. My father's house has many. You think that building is special. You think that building's significant. You think it's big. The one I'm going to build is better. Now, we do have to do some work here. I can't avoid this because I grew up in a Christian culture. We're going to take a pause for a second. We're just going to talk about the mansions. I grew up in a Christian culture where anytime I had a bad day, somebody would remind me, don't worry, just be faithful. One day you'll get your mansion. That's not what this passage says at all. The word mansion is not even here. When you translate this word from the Greek to the Latin, it's a word that looks like mansion. And unfortunately, when the English translators brought it over into English, they did what sometimes we do when we look at other languages and say, oh, it looks like mansion in English. It must mean mansion in the Latin. That's wrong. That's, that's not how translation works. The word doesn't mean mansion. The word actually is a verb that Jesus converts into a noun, which would have made his sentence a little awkward, but it would have also made it striking. It would have brought a lot of emphasis to what he was saying. The word means stay, to stay, or I am staying. It's a verb. So when Jesus turns it into a noun, it would have been sort of like, in my father's house, there's many staying places. In my father's house, there's lots of places to rest. In my father's house, there's many places for you to stay. Again, I think that this would have been in contradiction or in juxtaposition to the temple, which was limited. The temple Jesus is building is not, has nothing to do with mansions. When we get to heaven, it's not going to look like Bel Air or Rodeo or Deo Drive or whatever those places are. It's going to be, we all have a place to stay. All of us who are in Christ have a place to stay. Now, how is Jesus going to do that? Or why would he even do this? As Jesus is saying these words, he's in the city of Jerusalem with the towering Herodian temple hanging over top of him. Why would he say that my father's house and I go to prepare a better place than that? Why would he do that? The temple is functioning. It's working. It's doing what the temple has always done. Why would he need to promise a new temple? Again, because the old temple wasn't working. The old temple was excluding people. The old temple was the Pharisees' broken house at this point where they were weaponizing God's presence against the Gentiles. Remember in John chapter 2, they filled the entire presence of the Gentile court with animals and tables, and they were saying, be damned, Gentiles. There's no place for you in the Father's house. Even though in Isaiah he said, my house, it's a house of prayer. At this point, the temple had become rotten. If you read in Josephus, Josephus is a Jewish historian. He talks about the disgusting and despicable practices that were happening in the Herodian temple. It had become very corrupt. It was no longer a place where people would come to know God. It was a place where a sign was hanging up in the court of the women that said, if you're a Gentile and we find you here, we will kill you. There was a sign in the temple that said that. It was a temple that was used to buttress ethnocentricity and every other Jewish custom, but it wasn't a temple that was dedicated to the service of God. 
At its best, when Solomon built it, it was a type and it was a shadow of the true and better temple that was to come. It was never meant to be the final end-all, be-all temple. Jesus came to build a better temple where not just an elite class of people get to go in and only once per year into the holiest of holies, a place where all of his people get to go in, a kingdom even of priests. Have you ever thought about why the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests? Because you're no longer on the outside. You get to be in God's home. It doesn't mean that you need to wear funny clothes when you go to church. It doesn't mean that you need to go out and sacrifice an animal in your backyard. And if you do, put it on the grill and I'll be there. <laughs> Take mine uh, rare or medium rare. The point, though, is that every room is now open. When, P when Jesus or when Paul says that there's no more any division, no more dividing line, the curtain has been torn. He means that now we're in. So the temple had to be brought down the old temple in order to make way for a new and better temple. So an implication of this, what Jesus is saying is if he's going to build a new temple, the old temple has got to go. And that is in fact an overlooked aspect of the gospels that a lot of people have booted into future antichrist, future eschatology passages most of these passages I'm going to read with you have to do with Israel in the first century, Jesus taking away their temple because he's going to build a new one. This whole dynamic begins in Matthew 21. Read Matthew 21, not and through 24. Read it not as though these things are in the future or these things apply to us. They do by application, but read those passages with fresh eyes. And you'll see that Jesus is taking away their temple because of their sin and their rebellion. Let me give you a few examples. There's three parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 21. I'll give you one verse out of each of them. That's a lie. I'll give you four verses out of three of them. Truly I say to you, this is the first parable, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he's saying that they are going to stumble, if not completely, be out of the kingdom. And the tax collectors and the Pharisees, the ones that they hate, the ones they look down their nose at, the ones that they walk around and they, and they call them sinners. Pharisees invented the word sinners, by the way, talking to tax collectors and, and prostitutes. They will get in before you. Jesus is indicting them. Parable number two. It's called the parable of the landowner. Verse 20 or verse 43 of Matthew 21. Therefore, I say to you, look at the intensity is ratcheting up here. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a people who produce the fruit of it. That is such a powerful indictment because Jesus came into a city in his triumphal entry. And what did they lay down at his feet? They laid down leaves. And then he went to the temple and he cleansed the temple because it had no fruit. And then the next morning he found a fig tree that was leaves only, not bearing fruit. And he said, that is what Israel has become. And he cursed it. And then he comes into town and he says, this kingdom's going to be taken from you. Those are fighting words. The, th the third parable is even more shocking and striking. 
We've over-spiritualized this parable. This is the parable of the wedding feast. We've made this passage, this parable about us. This parable would have been shocking to them when they read this, heard this. Jesus is saying, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those who murders, those murderers and set fire to their city. Verse 13, then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saying that he called the Jews and they were unworthy to come. And because of that, he's going to send his armies and he's going to set fire to their city and they're going to be thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That happened 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead. That happened. God sent his armies, the Roman Empire, who marched upon the city of Jerusalem and they set the city on fire. And the Jews' place, status, and temple, which they were using in an abusive way were taken from them. It's one of the most beautiful fulfillments of prophecy if we read it through the lens of way it, the way it was written. It, but again, it keeps getting more intense the more you read. Matthew 23, 34 through 38, after he says seven woes on the Pharisees, where he pronounces seven aspects of condemnation, where he says, you have done this, you have done this, you have done this. This is what he says as a result of that. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. These are the missionaries that are going to come after Jesus rises from the dead. He's going to send them to the Jews. Some of them you will kill and crucify. That happened. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. That happened. Some of them you will persecute from city to city. That happened. Notice what Jesus says. So that upon you, Jerusalem, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in case we're wondering who he's talking to, who kills the prophets and who stones those who are sent to her, how often I've wanted to gather your children together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. He doesn't say God's house at this point. The language changes. He says your house, your temple, your empty trophy to your dead religion will be left to you desolate. And in case we were wondering exactly what that means, chapter 24, verse 1 through 2 tells us, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away and his disciples pointed to all the magnificent buildings. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. From Matthew 21 to Matthew 24, Jesus is exposing the idolatry of Judah. And he's saying that this temple that was supposed to be a type and a shadow of Christ, because it has been so thoroughly corrupted, will be torn down. And it was. And it was. But that's only half of the story. Often when we read the scriptures, we read that God is going to bring judgment upon his enemies, but we also need to read that God is going to bring salvation to his people. 
At this point, Judah, like Israel beforehand, had become an enemy of God, and God punished her. But he did not leave us without a temple. This is one of the great errors in the evangelical church, where we have read our 21st century Americanism back into the text. I'm a Christian. I don't worry about temples and sacrifices and all that stuff. Isn't Jesus your sacrifice? Isn't Jesus your true high priest who mediates between you and God? If you don't have a temple, you don't have God's presence because God has determined in his, in his wisdom and in his knowledge that he will share his presence through temple. If you're a Christian and you don't have a temple, then you don't have Christ. He doesn't leave us without a temple. He makes a new one. He creates and crafts a better one. We know this because of passages like John 2, 17 through 19. Zeal for your house will consume me, Jesus says. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He is not saying destroy this complex of Herodian architecture. He's saying destroy the temple of my body. That's the better temple that's coming. It's not a building, it's a body. We learned that in John chapter two that he's not gonna rebuild an old edifice. And this is very important because we don't enter into the presence of God just by coming into a building. We enter into the presence of God by coming through a body. And that body is Christ. The New Testament says that you are in him, which means that you're in the temple of God. This is exactly what happened. Jesus says, you kill this temple, I'll raise it again on the third day. That's what happened. At the end of his life, John 14 is the very last hours of his life. Judas leaves to betray him. A few hours later, Jesus and the disciples go to the garden. That's not a coincidence, is it? Temples and gardens always go together. And then after the garden, they arrest him and they beat him and they, they scoff at him and they lay false charges upon him and then they blindfold him and, and smack him and beat him and they, they pull him in front of Herod who mocks him. They pull him in front of a pilot who didn't have the courage or the backbone to save him. And then after 40 lashes, and after scourging, humiliation, bones and muscles exposed, they marched the temple of the Lord up to the top of the hill where it truly belonged, and they crucified him. But on the third day, this is not a temple that could be torn down with wrecking balls or bombs or Romans. On the third day, the true temple rose again from the dead and he created for us the only way that we could ever know and be and appreciate God. Look at what Hebrews 9 chapters one, or verse 1 through 12 says. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle that was prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, 
having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I love that because I'm always like that. We can't talk about this too much today. The author of Hebrews knows there's a lot going on here, so thank you for your grace and hearing all the context before we get to the point. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering into the outer tabernacle, the holy place, performing the divine worship. But into the second, that's the holy of holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of his people that were committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this to us, that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed while the outer temple was still standing, which is a symbol for this present time. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in their conscience, since they relate only to food and to drink and to various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, if you can't get excited about this, there's something wrong with us, right? You're like, oh, what is he talking about? Christ entered into the temple of heaven and he cleansed us of our sin. He purchased us with his own blood. He abolished the old building. He tore it down so there would be no more confusion. And he said, the only way that you can enter into the presence of God is through me. Hebrews 10 goes even a little bit further says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Christ has inaugurated a new temple for us through his own body. So that now we don't go to Jerusalem to meet with God. Now we don't go in through the holy place as an Aaronic temple. Now we go through Jesus Christ on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even Sunday. We go to God through Christ because he opened up a new and a living way. And we don't have confidence, dear brothers and sisters, based on our standing any longer, based on how good our offering is or how if we have a blemished lamb or whatever, we, our confidence now is based upon what Christ has done. Our salvation is not based on our best, it's based on his best. And Christ, at just the right time, sacrificed himself as a true high priest, as the true sacrifice with the true blood of the covenant to make us clean and make us whole, to bring us in. This is why the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The New Testament is not just saying flowery language here. 
in the Holy of Holies is where God's spirit powerfully dwelt. Now in the new covenant, his Holy Spirit powerfully dwells in you. The old temple's gone. The new temple's here. Where's the temple? It's sitting in your chair if you're a Christian. Wherever you go, wherever you walk, wherever your foot strikes the earth, the temple of the living God is there because the Holy Spirit of God is living in you based off of what Christ Jesus has done. And it's not just about you individually either. Look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that you is plural. If it were the New American Southern translation, it might be now that y'all are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole new building is being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Jesus in John 14 is saying, I go to prepare a better place for you because that one's not enough. It's too small. It's too insignificant. It's not good enough. I'm going to prepare a place for you that will be every single Christian that's ever lived as a living stone built together as a end time temple for the glory of God where God will share his presence with us forever. So when we get to heaven and all the saints are gathered around the throne of God, that's not a templeless environment. That is the very essence of the temple. A sacred people made sacred by a sacred God, worshiping him for all of eternity. That is temple. And it's all because of what Christ has done for you. Through the Holy Spirit. This is what God is working out in us. Now, as we land the plane ton of information that we share today. Hopefully it all makes sense as we wrapped it all together. I want to speak to you, to your confidence for a second. The three aspects of a temple is that he's brought us into a sacred space. Dear Christian, if you're a Christian, then you've been brought into a sacred space. That means that your body, that your heart, that your mind that your will, that your emotions are no longer offensive to God, but he's cleansed you. You're not your sin anymore. He's made you sacred. He's made you holy. He's forgiven you of all your sins. Everything that you have ever done that offended the holiness of God was nailed on the cross to Jesus Christ so that therefore you've been made new. It is so easy for us when we sin, to feel shame, to feel guilt, to feel like failures. And what Christ has done is irrevocable. When you look in the mirror, you are not your sin. You are not your failure. You are not your mistakes. You are not your brokenness. You are not your worst day. You are Christ Jesus' day, the day that he died and brought you into his kingdom through his perfect blood. That's who you are. Yes, you still sin, but you are not your sin. Yes, you still fall short, but you are not fallen if you're in Christ. Your temple of the living God made sacred through him. The other thing that I would share with you is that you've been given sacred duties. He doesn't eliminate the priesthood in the New Testament. He says you're a kingdom of priests. That means all of us have jobs. All of us have duties. 
All of us have things that we're supposed to do in light of what he's done for us. Now, we don't do things in order to be saved. We do things because he saved us. How are you going to serve this living Christ who's done all this for you? How are you going to be a priest or a priestess? How are you going to serve him based off what he's done for you? He's given you a mission. He's given you gifts. He's given you fruit. He's given you passions and talents. And he's called you into his service. Because the temple's not finished being built yet, is it? It says every Christian is a living stone being built together into an end-time temple. The temple's not finished yet. There's people who have not yet called upon the name of Christ, who will call upon the name of Christ, who will join you in the wall of the temple that Christ is building. How might God use you in his service? And then also I want to share just one last thing. Everywhere you go, the presence of God goes with you. You're not insignificant. You're not unimportant. You might be a day-old Christian. You may not know how to pronounce some of the Old Testament books, like Habakkuk. <laughs> Sorry, that was my Hebrew accent coming out. You may not know everything. No one does. But the thing I would tell you is, it's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's not about your intellect. It's about who Christ is and who Christ has made you to be. Live with your head high, dear Christian. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and you are a temple. Let's pray. Lord, from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, the reality of templing is there. The reality of you cutting out a space for your people to worship you in their sin and in their failure, and a reality of your grace to bring us in. Lord, none of us deserved to be in your presence. None of us for all of eternity will deserve to be in the light of your presence, and yet because of your kindness and your grace and your mercy, you have brought us in. That reality is true today for us who are in Christ, even if we don't feel it always. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of what that means. Help us to grow in our appreciation for what that means. Lord, help us to grow in, in, in just recognizing what that means, Father. And Lord, help us also to have hope for the future when faith will become sight, when we will stand around the throne of grace we hear those words, good and faithful. Welcome, my good and faithful servant. We will sing praises to you forever with unbound lips and unbound tongues, finally getting it. Lord, I pray that this church would grow in its understanding of worship, grow in its understanding of temple, and Lord, be grateful with all our hearts for what you've done for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.